I don't know if they still do it this way, but uh, when I was at school, picking teams for sports was one of the most cruel things imaginable. Uh, you were all lined up against the wall and the two captains were picked and then they had to choose one at a time, alternating who they wanted on their team. That's a cruel system. Now, not if you're a superstar sportsman, like I'm sure many of you were, but if you're a bit chubby, have two left feet and asthma, like I had, that wasn't good. You're sweating buckets as you're left standing at the end, and you know they would rather actually have nobody else on their team. You know, if a five-year-old girl walked past, they would pick her before they would pick you, but they have no choice. And I remember when I was about 14, I was third year in Kelowna, and, uh, and, and I, I, I couldn't do much sports, but I thought, you know what, cricket. They started to do cricket. I figured I could run between two stumps. I, um, I thought, you know, I can't run the 100 metres. I'm never going to be an athlete, but I can run, what, 20 metres or whatever it is. So they put up a, a notice for cricket practice, and I went out dutifully every Tuesday afternoon for cricket practice. There were going to be 15 on the team. There were 16 out for practice. I thought my odds were good there, and I was going to sabotage one of the other players if they weren't. Um, and I remember the day when they were putting up the, the team for the first game. It was against Armagh Royal and uh, it was going up at break time and I remember rushing down to the notice board to see if my name was there for the cricket team. And there was a crowd of guys around it but I managed to, to squeeze through it. There was my name, Craig Cooney. And there was something written in brackets beside it. And I'm a little short-sighted. Did it say Captain. Kitman. <laughs> True story. Kitman. The guy who carries the bags, the pads, the bats, the stumps for everyone else, the dog's body. The, the, basically, the, the guy who, who just hauls stuff around for people, the grunt. And because... I wasn't the most athletic or talented. I never got picked. You know, I'm, I'm glad God doesn't pick like we do. I'm glad God looks at different things to qualify us than we look at. Last week, we started looking at David, and we saw that Israel asked for a king. God was their king, but they said, we want a king like the other nations. We want a king to lead us into battle. And the most impressive guy they could find was Saul. He was handsome, he was attractive, he was from a good family, he was wealthy, and he was tall. We called him Tall Saul. And he got off to a really promising start. But because he was riddled by insecurity, he sought constantly to please people more than please God. He found himself doing things under the pressure of expectation of people rather than to glorify God. And then pride entered his heart and we saw that in one chapter he's building an altar to God and the next chapter he's building a monument to himself. And so eventually God has enough. God says this to him, you were once small in your own eyes. In other words, while you were humble, I could use you. But now that you've got uh, proud and arrogant and you, you think you're capable of this, I can no longer Use you. 
And it gets to the stage where God says this in 1 Samuel 15, 26. Samuel said to him, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. The amazing thing is that even after Samuel said that to Saul, he still continued to be king for 20 more years. You see, you can have a title and you can have a position, but not have the anointing of God. And when you don't have the favor and the anointing of God, whatever title and position that is, is not going to be good. It's going to be a constant battle. It's going to be an uphill struggle. It's going to be like trying to push water uphill. And that's what we see for the rest of Saul's life. He didn't have the blessing and favor of God. And then at the end of 1 Samuel 15, we read this. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, although Samuel mourned for him. Samuel's taking this badly. He's struggling emotionally, and we ended on this last week. He's concerned for Israel. Up until now, he's been kind of the, the, the leader in Israel. Samuel's been the great prophet. He knows he's getting old. His sons are basically no, good for nothings. And so Saul, all his hope was in Saul. That without Saul, he didn't know what Israel would do. And they'd probably developed a relationship over time, Samuel and Saul. They developed a friendship. He took it personally. He was the one who had anointed Saul. He was the one who had selected Saul and, and conferred on him kingship in front of all the people. And now that God had rejected him, he maybe felt like he was a failure. Because before this, he had a 100% success rate. We read this earlier in 1 Samuel, that the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. In other words, everything Samuel did, everything he prophesied happened just as God said. And yet here he has conferred kingship on Saul and Saul is no longer under the blessing of God. He's disappointed. Samuel had invested a lot in Saul. And you know what? You'll know this. The more you invest in something or someone, the harder it is to walk away from them. If somebody burps in front of you on a first date, you can walk away. If you're married to them for five years, a little bit more tricky. Okay, the more you invest, the harder it is to walk away. Look at that word in verse 35, mourn. He mourned. And then a few verses later, 16 verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul. It's the same word, mourn, grieve. And the thing is, everywhere else in the Bible, that word is used for somebody who has physically died. Remember when Jacob is told by Joseph's brothers that they'd found his robe and it was covered in blood and that he was dead? It says Jacob grieved, he mourned. It's the same word. Remember when David's son died, it says he mourned. It's the same word. He's grieving. He's lamenting. He's mourning. And we don't know how long he's been mourning. But God shows up and says to the old prophet, how long will you mourn for what I have rejected? And I wonder if God is looking at some of us today and asking, how long are you going to stay in a season that's over? I know I touched on this last week, but God has been impressing this on my heart all week. How long are you going to relive the, relive the pain of something that's already passed? How long will you compromise or jeopardize your destiny because you can't get past your history? 
How long are you going to let that thing that brought you down eight years ago continue to bring you down eight years later? How long are you going to continue to stalk your ex on Facebook wishing? That's what it would say in the Message Bible. How long will you do a mental replay of what happened over and over again, obsessing about what could have been, what you would do different now, if you only had the chance to do it again, if you could only say that again, if you could only meet that person again, how you would do it differently? How long will you carry around regret and shame and guilt about something you did that hurt someone else? How long? When life doesn't go as we dreamed or planned, it would. It can be very difficult to see any hope for the future. The way you thought it would happen is not the way it did happen. And so you're left disappointed, even devastated, with no passion or vision for the future. The thing is this. If you stick, if you get stuck and stick in what was, you will miss what is, and you'll never get to experience what could be. I love what Lamentations says. It says, the Lord's compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Every morning when you wake up, there's enough grace for you to get through that day. There's enough of God's love for you to get through that day. It doesn't matter what happened yesterday. It doesn't matter how you failed a year ago. When you wake up every morning, there is compassion and there's favor and there's goodness on your life for that day. Many of you will remember, uh, or have heard of a guy called Rick Warren. Do you like my new water bottle, by the way? I can see you're all thinking he's bought a flask. Um, (laughs) Just wait a few weeks, you'll all have one. Um, Rick Warren, uh, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, uh, the best-selling non-fiction book of all time, Number two is John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. When you beat John Bunyan, you're doing well. Um, but I was listening to something was, he was talking about. Uh, five, years, five, six years ago, Rick Warren's son, who was 27, tragically committed suicide. And I was listening to Rick Warren talking about that devastating event and how he had to preach, even though he really didn't want to preach a number of months Later, He didn't feel ready, but he knew he would never be ready. And he said this, and I want you to listen to this. He said, moving on doesn't mean you stop caring. It just means that you can't change it. I thought that was incredibly profound. Some of you need to hear that. Moving on doesn't mean you stop caring. It just means that you understand that you can't change it. Moving on doesn't mean you stop hurting. It just means that you can't change it. Moving on doesn't even mean that you don't wish it could have been different. It just means that you know that you can't change it. Moving on is saying, God, I'm really hurting, but here's my heart. You don't have to stop mourning to start moving. You can feel the pain and still progress. And Samuel had got stuck in his disappointment. And what I've found is when you get stuck in disappointment, that can become despair and depression. 
And God says to him, move on. Some seasons and some people and some relationships in your life and some places are never coming back. You need to realize that. You're not going to be that football star everyone thought you were going to be when you were 17. You're not going to be that famous singer. So stop watching the X Factor every week thinking that should be me. That could be me if I just got my big break. You're never going to be the same dress size as you were back in 1982. So stop buying clothes that are that same dress size because those trousers and that tops have, those tops have only got so much stretch and give in them. Just to realize you're not going back there. It's time to move on. It's time to move forward. God hasn't finished with you yet. Look at what he says to Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. This was a ram's horn hollowed out and filled with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. God sends Samuel to a man called Jesse who's got seven sons. Well, actually, he's got eight, but the eighth one we don't really talk about too much because he's not worth mentioning. He's the youngest. He's a nobody. And while we're at it, Bethlehem was basically a hole in the hedge. We all know about Bethlehem because Jesus was born there and we sing Christmas carols about it. But in those days, Bethlehem was a little rural hick town in the middle of nowhere. The closest Tesco was half an hour away. The nearest McDonald's was 45 minutes away. It was that sort of place. Samuel gets to Bethlehem and tells Jesse, bring all your sons down. We're going to worship God together. And we read this in verse 6, when they arrived. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So the oldest son, Eliab, comes in at first. And he's one fine-looking, handsome specimen of a man. I mean, Eliab almost had Samuel at hello. And, and immediately Samuel thinks he's the one. He starts pulling, pulling out the oil and he's about to anoint Eliab. And God says, no. He's about to anoint him because he looks physically impressive. Because look at what God says in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Just a thought here. By appearance, could it be that Eliab was the one who most resembled Saul? We know that Saul was attractive. We know that he was tall. And God says, don't just go by his appearance or his height. Could it be that he looked like the king that God had just rejected? Could it be that Samuel hadn't really learned a lesson from Saul's failure? He was just going by externals and would have been happy to appoint somebody just like the one who had just failed because he thought that he looks like a king. And how often do we not learn lessons from our mistakes or experience? There's people who get out of one bad relationship and go straight into a relationship with a guy or a girl who's exactly the same as the one they broke up with. There's people who leave one job because they hate it and they go to another job and they hate it just as much because they, they just are not in the right place. But they keep moving from one thing to another. And they think the problem's with it when the common denominator is you. 
Some of us watch others fail and make a mistake in some areas of their life. And we, and we look at them and go, I could never do that. And then we do the same thing ourselves. God wants us to learn from our mistakes so that we just don't go through this pattern of repeating the same thing over and over again. Some of us, some of us live the same year of our lives 60 times and then we die. And there are some patterns that need to be broken and there are some mindsets that need to shift and there are some things that God wants to say to you just because you've always done it this way doesn't mean that's the way to do it. God says, stop, Samuel, stop. He's not the one I've picked. We're so impressed by externals. We don't even think about it. But we treat people so much based on their appearance. We treat people based on their physical appearance. We treat people based on their titles and their positions. I remember being in Craig Oven Hospital a number of years ago when I was a curate in Lurgan. And I was asking one of the staff members for something and she turned around and she was really rude to me. And then she saw this little bit of white plastic. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, how can I help you? It's amazing how one inch of white plastic totally changed how she related to me. I was the same person. And it's amazing how we treat people differently based on title, our looks, our position, our fame. And God doesn't care about any of this. He sees right through it and he sees into our hearts. And that can be comforting, but I don't know about you because that can be frightening. Because I know what's in my heart sometimes. Sometimes I look better on the outside than I do on the inside. Sometimes my external is better than what's going on in my heart. My secret thoughts, my hidden motives, my deepest desires. And everyone looked at Eliab and thought he must be the king, but he's not God's choice. Let's continue to read verses 8 to 11. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah, and it keeps going on. No, not this one, nada, nope, Eh -eh. keep going. And it gets to the stage where all seven sons have come past, and God has said no to all of them, and Samuel's confused. And he's probably about to say, why don't we go back to the start, bring an Eliab again. Let's start at the beginning because there's something. And he says, are you sure these are all your sons? Are you sure this is it? And he says, well, uh, Jesse says, well, well, well there, there's, I mean, there's David. Like, I mean, we don't really talk about him. I mean, he, he's just a wee lad out in the field. He's just a wee shepherd boy. He's unimportant. Let's think about David at this stage. Scholars said David was between 10 and 14 years old. He was the youngest son of Jesse. How many sons had already been paraded through? What's the number of completion and perfection in Hebrew? Okay. Seven was the perfect number. Seven was the complete number. Seven was the number of sons that Jesse was satisfied with. And then this number eight arrives. The extra one. The surprise. One too many. The unplanned one. The unrequired one. In fact, 
when you read commentaries, Jewish scholars actually debate whether David was born to Jesse's first wife or whether he was actually born to Jesse's wife at all, whether he was born maybe out of an affair. Could that explain the, uh, the constant tension between him and his brothers? Could it explain why he stuck out in the field? Because what do we want to do with our mistakes? Cover them up. Put them out where no one can see them. Out of sight, out of mind. Maybe David was even aware of this because at one stage when he's writing Psalm 51, he wrote this. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now he could be talking about original sin, the sin nature that we're all born with, or maybe he knows something about how he was conceived in the womb. Maybe he knows something about what his dad did those years ago. Whatever happens, we know that he was unnoticed, undervalued, and overlooked. He spent his life out in the field as a shepherd. And when we look at our little children's Bibles, we tend to think, oh, he just sat there on a rock all day, just stroking this little fluffy shepherd and playing his little harp, and wasn't it beautiful? No, shepherding was pretty much the worst job anyone can do. Shepherds were at the very bottom of the social ladder. I was going to compare it to a job today, but I know somebody in here will end up doing that job. But if you, it's just the lowest of the low jobs. Shepherds weren't allowed to testify in court because they were seen as so untrustworthy. They were seen as gypsies who just wandered from place to place. The field was not a pleasant place. It was smelly. You spent your day walking through sheep dung while you sweated under the hot Mediterranean sun all day, or Middle Eastern sun. It was dangerous. You didn't know who would come along. You were isolated. You were on your own. There were wild animals. David talks about fighting the lion and the bear. It was lonely. There was no company except for the sheep. But like that in movie, remember the Tom Hanks one? I was talking to, I was with the worship team the other night and we were sharing some of this. What did he call the, the volleyball? Wilson. I wonder, did, did David have names for the sheep, you know? Sammy, Herbie, George. <laughs> Why are they all people in this church? Um, but I wonder, did he build up a friendship almost that, 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 that he, he, he spent the hill, his time on the hillside looking after the sheep. It was the most monotonous job. Basically, he would get up in the morning early. He would have his ready break. He would wander down to the field. We don't know how far it was. He would count the sheep to make sure they were all still there. He would lead them up to a field to feed if he could find a green pasture. He would bring them back into the pen. He would watch over them. He would sit there on a rock. He would look at them. Five minutes has passed, goodness. It must be near home time. Oh, it's only 11 a.m. My goodness me. This is going to be a long day. I kind of hope a lion or bear comes just to give me a wee bit of excitement, actually. And there's no Wi-Fi signal or no 4G out here. I mean, there's nothing I can do. Goodness sake. Flossie, how you doing? How was your night, Flossie? Did you sleep all? Aye, okay. 
That was his life. And at the end of the day, he went home, wash, rinse, repeat, got up the next day, did the same thing over and over again. It was a monotony. There wasn't a lot of room for promotion. Where was he going to go from? Shepherd to chief shepherd? There wasn't anyone above him anyway. There were no great career prospects. And yet, and yet, it was in the field that David learned to sing. He learned to write songs. He learned to play a musical instrument called a lyre. It was in the field that he learned to practice with a slingshot. Day after day, you can imagine him setting things up and knocking them down. It was day after day in the field that he learned to take on things that were frightening and bigger than him, the lion and the bear. It was in the field that God prepared him strategically to develop the skills and the character traits that he would need to get him to where God had planned for him. Later on, his musical ability would bring him into the palace. When Saul was being tormented by demons, he sends for David. And when you're going to be king one day, what's the best training ground? The palace where you can learn what to do and what not to do. You can learn royal protocol. It was practicing with a slingshot that brought him to be able to bring down Goliath. It was fighting lions and bears that gave him the courage to say, if God is with me, I can take on anything and anyone that's bigger than me. It was leading smelly sheep when they wandered off and did their own thing that enabled him to one day lead a nation. God developed him in the field. The field of frustration and of failure and where he was forgotten also was the field of favor because nothing is wasted with God. Nothing in your life is wasted with God. Even the things and the places and the situations and the heartaches that you would rather avoid. Nothing is wasted with God. He takes it all and he recycles it for his glory, and for your future. God puts us in places and in situations around people that might not be our first choice. But unless we spend time in the field, we'll never spend time in the palace. Unless we find favor in the field, we will never find favor outside the field. There was a king in this kid, and nobody could see it except for God. And he might not have been planned by his earthly father, Jesse. But as David spent time in the field, he became aware of something. That while I might have been an accident to my earthly father, I was no accident to my heavenly father. I remember hearing the singer Brian Houston talk about that. Brian Houston was told by his dad when he was young that he was unplanned and unwanted. And I remember him standing there and saying... My own father might not have planned me and might not have wanted me, but my heavenly father had planned me. And David found out exactly the same because look at what he writes in Psalm 139. You have searched me and know me. You discern my going out and lying down. You hem me in behind and before. And then he says this in the next slide there. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So I might have been an accident from Jesse, but you formed me 
You knit me together. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. I was woven together. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. How precious about me are your thoughts. I might not have been wanted by my earthly father, but my heavenly father took great care and precision in knitting me together in my mother's womb so that I would be exactly how I am. And you might not have been planned. You might not have had the perfect upbringing. You might not have had the perfect earthly father. But I want to say to you, you have a heavenly father who saw into your mom's tummy and he started to work and he started to shape and he gave you your personality And he made you as you are. Even some of the things you don't like about yourself. He formed you and he shaped you. Because you're not one of eight. You're one of one. David was one of eight. But in God's eyes he was one of one. Because there was nobody else like him. And in the field when there was no one to talk to, no one to listen, David talked to God. He sang to God. He listened to God. He, he, he. Didn't have an audience of people, but he had an audience of one. He prayed and he enjoyed the smile of God. He knew that his earthly father might have hidden him, but his heavenly father adored him. And when you read the Psalms, they're so personal. My soul longs for you. My body aches for you. I mean, I love my wife, but I'm not going to climb into bed and say that to Becky at night. That's going nowhere, that convo right there, okay? Becky, my soul longs for you. My body aches for you. You need some ibuprofen, Craig. I promise you it's water. But there's this intimacy that most of us today really struggle with in our Western culture. There's this intimacy that this little boy had with his God. It's like, have you ever seen a couple who are completely in love and they're whispering and they're sweet nothings? It's almost embarrassing to listen to their conversation as they talk to each other with such affection and intimacy. The Psalms, it's almost like listening into that intimate conversation between two lovers. But David understood something, that our God is a passionate God. That our God is not some daddy who's far and removed and remote, but our God is a passionate God. He's a loving father who wants to know us, who wants to be close to us, who wants to be involved in every single aspect of our lives. And I think that's why David is the only person in scripture described as a man after God's own heart. He got to know the heart of God in the field. He got to know the heart of God in the field that he would never have discovered in the house if he'd remained with his brothers. It looked like he had been forgotten in the field. In human terms, it looked like he had been forgotten when actually God had just hidden him. And do you know what we hide? The things that we value most. When you go on holidays and you're leaving your house for two weeks, the things you hide are the things that are most valuable. And sometimes you might think you're forgotten by God when actually he's just hidden you. Because visibility does not determine value. In our world of social media and reality TV, visibility is equated with value, but not in God's eyes. Sometimes the less visible, the more value. If I lose my little finger, my pinky, I'm fine. I can do without it. If I lose my kidneys, I'm gone. 
You can see this, you can't see those. Sometimes the most visible things are not the most valuable things. And sometimes you might think that you're not visible when actually God has just hidden you because he wants to do something in you that can only be done in the secret place. Have you ever bought somebody something, maybe something for the house or a nice dinner set or clothes and, and you keep thinking as the weeks and months go on that they must hate it. They, they never wear it. They never, never, I mean, I keep going over every week for tea and coffee and my plates never come out. I mean, they must hate them. And then, let's say it's an item of clothing and you're at a Christmas party and they walk in wearing the shirt you gave them. And you're like, I thought you hated that shirt. For the last three months, I thought you hated that. And they go, hate it? I love it. I love it so much that I put it away and saved it for a special occasion. And sometimes God hides us because he's saving us for a special occasion. Not because he has abandoned us, but because he has chosen us. You might feel undervalued, underappreciated, unnoticed, unremarkable. And yet God knows exactly where you are. God knows who you are. God's chosen you. He sees you. And David was being taught in the field that which would one day make him fit to wear a crown. The way it seems is not always the way God sees it. The way it seems to us is not always the way God sees it. The way you see your situation and the way your life seems right now might not be how God sees it. Because look at what happens when the moment comes. Samuel called for him. Let's finish verses 11 to 13. There's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him for we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. You see, it wasn't that God just didn't want handsome people. It was that that's just irrelevant to God. David was handsome. The other brothers were handsome. But that just wasn't the issue. The issue was what was in the heart. Then the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So David's out in the field and he's just doing what he always does. He's just being faithful in the small things. And I don't know if it was one of the brothers or servants or whatever comes out and says, David, dad wants you. What does he want? Oh no, he never calls me. I must be in trouble. And we don't know how long the journey was. And we don't know what was going through David's mind. But little did he know that from that point forward, his life would never be the same again. The kid was about to be anointed king. To others, he would look like an overnight success. But as all overnight successes will tell you, it happened over many nights. It happens over many nights of faithfulness and serving behind the scenes. I'm part of Generation X. We were the microwave generation. We wanted everything quickly. Do you know who we gave birth to? Millennials, the internet generation, who want everything even quicker. And yet, 
character and depth of relationship with God cannot be microwaved or googled. It can only be developed day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month after month, layer upon layer upon layer. And it's often unseen in isolation and loneliness. And what looks like a suddenly often happens very slowly. It's just suddenly revealed because God has had it concealed. I have a friend, some of you will actually know the Smiths. Richie, I have a friend, Richie Smith. I haven't seen him in a while, but Richie grew up in Portugal. His family are from the area here. They went out to Portugal as missionaries. I was talking to somebody about this 20 years ago, so I may not get, I was talking to somebody about this during the week, and so I may not get every fact completely right, but I was talking to somebody from Porto Elam during the weekend. Richie's parents went out to Portugal as missionaries 20 and spent 20 years out there. And in 20 years, I don't think they saw one person come to Christ. 20 years in obscurity and isolation away from their family in a foreign country with a different language, laboring day after day and didn't see one person come to Christ. And about 10, 12 years ago, they came back here only to discover that half of Portugal had moved to this area. Last week, they saw 13 Portuguese people come to Christ. 13 in a week. Porto Down Elam every Sunday have a Portuguese interpreter. It's them. There's so many Portuguese people getting saved through their ministry. What seemed like a total waste for 20 years was God's preparation for now. But at the time, it definitely didn't seem like it. It seemed wasted. It seemed pointless. It seemed futile. And yet God was doing something hidden in them because he had something for them. And sometimes, and I know I may have used this illustration before, when you're flying somewhere, let's say you're flying to Australia, you've got to have a stopover somewhere. You don't want to be in the country where you stop over, but you can't get to where you're going unless you stop over here. And in some of your lives now, you're in a stopover place. And it feels like a place which is pointless. But you can't get to the place that God actually wants you to go unless you stop over here. God was preparing David faithfully when no one was looking so that he would have favor when everybody's eyes were upon him. And there's just one more thing I want you to see. When David came in from the field... He was dirty, he was dusty, he was sweaty, and he stank of sheep poo. And God says, he's the one, Samuel, he's the one, anoint him. And Samuel's going, him? And the angels are going, him? And God says, yes, him, anoint him. And I can imagine Samuel maybe thought, well, well, God, shouldn't he change first? Clean himself up a bit? No, anoint him while he's still dirty. David had the oil of anointing on his head while he still had sheep dung under his fingernails. And what I'm trying to tell you is this, that God doesn't anoint perfect people. He anoints you before you're ready to get you ready. God doesn't 
called the qualified, he qualifies the called. And you might think right now, oh, there's so much I'd love to do for God, but I feel so dirty. I feel so stinking. And God says, anoint him. Because when he's anointed, he can start the real preparation. And it would be 20 more years of preparation, most of it on the run from a crazy king before David would be appointed. He was anointed, but not appointed. The anointing with oil, but here's the thing. The anointing with oil, it says it was done in front of everyone, all his brothers. It was a public declaration of what God had already done with David in private. The anointing physically might have happened in his father's house, but you know where the real anointing was? In the field. When he was looking after the sheep. When nobody was looking. And I want to tell you today that you're anointed by God wherever you are. I want you to say to yourself, I am anointed. I am called. You might be in the field. You might be in a place you don't want to be. You might feel forgotten about. You might feel isolated, lonely, rejected, undervalued, unknown. You might be in a job you hate. You might be in a family situation that's less than ideal. You might be in a, in a relational tension place that you want to get out of. And I want to say to you, God has anointed you in the messy place, not in the perfect place. God has anointed you for serving him and the world and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, 13 years ago, I knelt at the front of the church and Bishop Harold laid his hands on me and anointed me for ordained ministry. And that was wonderful and it was beautiful and it was special. But I want to tell you that I was just as called and just as anointed as a minister of the gospel when I was 15 years old and I stood shaking at the front of Portadown College Scripture Union. I want to tell you that I was just as anointed and just as called when I was 16 years old and was working in Woolworths and trying not to steal the pick and mix. (laughs) I was just as called and just as anointed when I was in Dunn stores stacking shelves for two years and I'm aware that everywhere I work closes. But the others are still open, I think. Actually, British Home Stores, I worked there, I promise you. I was anointed, it wasn't. When I was 21 years old and working for Coca-Cola in bars and clubs and supermarkets, giving out free samples of fizzy juice to people, I was anointed. When I was selling plastic pump dispensers to soap manufacturers, Yes, the little squidgy pump things. When I sold 20 million of those in one year, I was anointed. When I was selling cleaning products by Unilever to hotels, I was anointed. When I was at Bible college and spent my summers at 6 a.m. walking the streets of Belfast as a postman, I was anointed. Anointing doesn't mean that you have a platform at the front. God anoints you for wherever you are. If you're a teacher, if you're a housewife, if you're a mom, if you're a carpenter, if you're a plumber, if you're a businessman, if you're an accountant, whatever you are, whatever you're doing, God's anointing is upon you. Even in the mess and the muck and the dirt and the filth. Nothing is wasted with God. 
I want to finish by reading something. I do this little Instagram thing called Daily Prophetic, and I wrote something a number of months, maybe a month or two ago, and it was probably the most responded to post. And somebody in the church here put it on their, their Facebook just a few days ago, and I want to read it just as we close our eyes and pray. I want to speak this as a prophetic word over you. Perhaps the worship team could come up to lead us. And I want you to hear this as a word from the Father. You haven't missed it. The Lord hasn't passed you by. At times it has felt that everyone else was advancing while you were being left behind. That you had been forgotten. However, the Lord has you on a unique schedule and timetable, perfectly timed to position you for his purposes. You have been through a lot of pain, rejection, and even betrayal by those you trusted. However, be assured, no one who left your life is necessary for your future. None of what's happened will be wasted. The Lord has been digging deep foundations so that he can build something significant and strong. The wilderness and obscurity you have faced was your season of preparation for promotion. You thought you'd been left behind when in fact, like an arrow in an archer's bow being pulled back to to be propelled forward, you're about to be launched into a good and expansive and favor-filled future. Take heart, faithful one. Don't grow weary and waiting because it's your time. It's your turn. And Lord God, I pray for each person here that they would realize that whatever situation they find themselves in today, that they are anointed. They may feel overlooked and undervalued. They may feel rejected and betrayed. But Lord, maybe you've hidden them. Maybe you're preparing them. And maybe they can't get to the place that you need them to be unless they spend time in a place that they don't want to be. And sometimes the power of the Holy Spirit comes not to move us to another place, but to give us perseverance in the place we're in. And so God, I thank you that you call us and you chose us, not because of how wonderful we are, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I pray that today we would grasp that we are anointed, that the oil of the Holy Spirit has been poured out lavishly upon us, and that we would go from here to bring your life and your light into places of darkness and death, that Christ may be glorified. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.